We're in a Galatians 1, 11 today. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still an unknown person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Good morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we open up Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, may your spirit speak through it to us. We desire to hear from you this morning, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul realized there were false teachers in the Galatian churches who caused confusion in the minds of the believers in the early church. The false teachers produced doubt in the simplicity of the gospel, and they initiated this disbelief in the Apostle Paul as well as the gospel itself. So naturally, this led people to think, did Paul make this gospel up? Uh, and if he didn't, then where did the gospel come from? Where did it originate? These may be questions some of you or may have or some of the people that you know may have because in our pluralistic society, the Christian gospel being the only way, which is salvation through grace by faith in Jesus Christ, that only one way through Jesus Christ to enter into the presence of God for everlasting, that may be a difficult faith to accept in our society. It's not difficult to accept Jesus as a way, but the way, no way, right? So how can Christians make such an exclusive, intolerant claim? Well, we have to take a look at this fundamental question. Where did the gospel come from? And the scriptural text that we're going to be looking at this morning addresses this pivotal question. Starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So let's first take a look at Paul's statement in verse 11, for I would have you know. Now this is a term that is of a, a legal terminology. Paul was kind of laying down the groundwork to say, I'm going to be submitting evidence that the gospel I'm preaching was not made up by any person. So where did the gospel come from? And he's saying it's not by man, and the gospel's origins are from God, not from humans. Not only was the gospel divinely created, but so was the mission of Jesus. And you take a look back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The gospel, the good news, the message of God's grace, 
also has divine origins. It, it wasn't created by men. It wasn't based off of men's religious research or by their customs or traditions, not by knowledge imparted by men, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, revealed the gospel. No human credit toward the origin of the gospel. Now that's not to say that humans don't have a role in sharing the gospel. We as followers of Jesus have been given shares of ownership in the gospel and that we have a role in sharing the gospel. But the origin, the creation of the gospel has nothing to do with humans. It's all God. All of it. Paul had a role in spreading the gospel, but he had no part in its creation. It was given to us to share. Knowing the gospel isn't enough to change someone's life, though, is it? Paul had knowledge of it. He knew of the stories of Jesus' followers, of those who had died for their faith and trusted in the gospel. He was a rabbi. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He knew the scriptures, yet he could not see or understand the truth of the gospel until he met Jesus. And so it goes for people today. We can have all the knowledge in the world of the Bible, of the gospel, until we meet Jesus. None of it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. And you take a look at Paul or the Pharisees and the scribes in the synoptic gospels. So much knowledge of the scriptures, yet not affected by the gospel of Jesus. And you take a look at people today. People who know the Bible to some extent, who have some knowledge of the gospel, yet there isn't any change. See, the gospel is more than knowledge. If you only have the information, you'll be like Paul prior to his Damascus Road conversion. You'll know a lot, but there won't be any transformation. Now, take a look at Paul's example before Acts chapter 9 and after Acts chapter 9. A completely transformed person was Paul after meeting Jesus. It's not like he gained more information or knowledge after meeting Jesus. He didn't go back to school and get an MDiv or something like that, right? He didn't do that. It's all that knowledge he had already had. It came to light. It opened his eyes. It all made sense after he encountered Jesus. He was able to see the nature, the heart, the character of God. And so it is for us. We may have all the knowledge and information about God, but until we encounter Jesus, it's not completely revealed to us. Your life won't be changed. And whatever sins have you captive, whatever compromises you live with, they will keep you in bondage until you encounter Jesus, the deliverer of sins. When the good news of the gospel remains knowledge and information, you may be good at being religious, you may be good at social justice. You may be good at going to church. You may be good at living a moral life. But your life won't be transformed and that God looks at you as righteous because Jesus paid your debt of sin. You may know the gospel in your head, but it hasn't been activated in your life. What is life like before and after entering a life transformed by the gospel? We find this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. That's the gospel. That's life before and after the transforming effects of the gospel. Now think about the gospel message. Who in the world would make this up? If you were out to create a message to have people believe in and to trust in, would you create one like this? Judgment from God. Who would start a revolutionary worldview with one that declared, you are dead? Right? You are dead in your trespasses and sins you once walked. What movement, religion, philosophy, ideology starts there? If a Christian worldview were to start anew today, it just wouldn't fly. And you know what? It didn't fly back in Paul's day either if it weren't indeed the truth created by God. Because who starts good news with doom and gloom? Who does that? You think about how things are made acceptable to people, how people market their causes. They do it with a positive note. right? Something that affirms people for who they are, that builds upon people's desires. You don't start a cause contrary to who people think that they are, what they want, or how they want it, and when they want it. You mark it to their wants and to their desires. This is the complete opposite of a successful marketing plan. This is bad. But this is the gospel. This is the gospel. What's the key point in the gospel message? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Way to go, God. Good job. Way to attract people. Good job drawing people in. But God's truthful. God is truthful. We might not like the truth, but it's the truth. How else can Paul's conversion be explained? No possible way Paul becomes a Christian. No way. If you had a lineup of people, a lineup of people who you would think, who's going to become Christian out of this group of people? And you had their resume, and you had their references, and you interviewed all of them. You'd never pick Paul to be a Christian. Never. Because listen to what Paul wrote about himself. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Paul was a religious extremist. You look at what he said about himself to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. In other words, Paul was a member of the Tea Party, right? He's hardcore. Strictest party of our religion. He's a Tea Party member. He was like that bad pale dude, right, in Da Vinci Code. He's like that dude. Right, Opus Dei guy, like hardcore, just 
That was Paul, except for the pale part, because people in that part of the world have darker pigmentation. But anyway, still a bad dude, though. That was Paul. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, see, he was with that bad dude in Da Vinci Code, because that dude was named Silas. They were beaten up. They were locked up in prison until the police told the jailer to let them go. But in Acts chapter 16, verses 37 through 39, Paul said these things to these law enforcement guys. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Why am I sharing this with you? Because Paul was from a very favored family. He was a Jewish Roman citizen. So he had these recognized civil rights that non-Roman citizens didn't have. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background about Paul. Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished, given authority to defend the Jewish faith and imprison Christians. Paul said in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, meaning my lineage goes way back. I bleed Pharisee. Acts chapter 26, verse 10, Paul was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. So we're not just talking about any Joe Schmo religious extremist here, right? We're talking about a religious extremist with clout. We're talking about a Roman citizen. That if some Roman guy tried to get him and say, like, hey, you got to stop doing what I'm Roman. Get out of my way. No one can stop this guy. A citizen of Rome trained under one of the greatest rabbis in the law, Gamaliel, who was given the green light to persecute Christians to the death and imprison them by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He comes from a lineage of Pharisees, and he was a leader amongst the Pharisees. This is an extremist of the extremist. He also followed the halakha the Jewish law, which comes from the Torah, but also had these additional rules and practices that came from the rabbis and other customs and traditions. It was more of a biblical law found in the Torah, but it was more than that. It was the religious laws also consisting of Talmudic law and rabbinic law and the customs and the traditions by all these generations before them. A Jewish religious extremist followed halakha. They followed it. And Paul said, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This guy is a religious extremist. He is a terrorist in the name of religion. That's who Paul was. He'd be the type of person who'd fully endorse going into a shopping mall and killing people for his religion. That's Paul. Get this in your head. Don't sugarcoat Paul at all because I want you to understand his conversion is very unlikely it would not happen 
Because isn't that what he essentially did at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr? Wasn't he that same kind of a terrorist that says, yeah, go into a mall and shoot everybody? Paul was there as the voting member of the Sanhedrin at Stephen's death, and he witnessed the murder of Stephen. He was a religious extremist, a terrorist. He persecuted Christians to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, and then he became a Christian. No one would pick Paul to follow Jesus, except Jesus. You think people wanted Paul on their side after condoning the killing of one of their friends? Think he'd be trusted after imprisoning their loved ones? Only by the grace of God. The gospel was not the creation of people, and the truth is so hard to accept for some, yet it's so clear in Paul's head this is obviously not God. Do you know who I am? Now, some of you may feel, you know what? I'm not that bad. I'm not even close to being Paul. I'm actually a good person. No, you're not. No, you're not. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, there aren't degrees of sinfulness to a holy God. You're either sinful or you're sinless. It's like being pregnant. You either are or you are not. There's no like, mm, little. <laughs> you are or you're not. It's like being dead. If you're dead, you're dead. You're not a little alive. You're dead. All have sinned. You are a sinner. You're not a little sinner. You're a sinner. Right? But Jesus entered Paul's life. And he transformed from a terrorist to a man filled with God and his grace. And his life was proof that the gospel was not invented by humans. And his conversion was an act of God. You notice how many times Paul used the first person singular throughout Galatians chapter 1? Let me run by this really quickly. I am astonished. I say, I, am I now seeking? Am I trying to please man? If I, I would not. I would have you know. I did not receive, nor was I taught, but I received. I persecuted the church. I was advancing. So extremeless, extremely zealous was I. Thirteen times in fourteen verses. I, I, I. I, I, I. Right? Now look at verse 15. This is awesome. But when he... But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. But when he, but when God. Now here's the change in tone. You'll notice a change in tone. Before it was I, 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 I. But when he. You can just see this smile come across, right? Everything changed for Paul when God converted Paul by his grace. If anyone wonders if they can be a Christian because you don't feel good enough, or maybe you're too proud to become one, just look at Paul's life. Look at the Apostle Paul. For whatever reason you may feel you just don't fit into being a follower of Jesus, look at Paul. A perfect example of God calling the most improbable person by his grace. And you can have all the excuses in the world. I, 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 I. But when he. But when he. God changes everything. Everything is different. 
you can live contrary to God in rebellion to God, but when he, things change. Things change. When we share the gospel, let's not forget that God converts. We may think our answers or our life, our words, our actions, those are the things that bring people to God. Don't fool yourself. All right, let's not fool ourselves. God gave us the dignity to participate with him in saving people's souls. But it's when he enters. But when he enters the pictures, when lives are transformed. I love those three words. I can be messed up, imperfect, broken, dirty. But when he, the grace of God, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but when he. Verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again in Damascus. Paul went into a time of solitude, which gives support to verses 11 and 12. When Paul wrote, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He went to be alone with God. With his eyes opened, finally, the scales taken off, his understanding of the scriptures became clearer because knowing Jesus gave him so much more clarity regarding the things like messianic prophecies and the revelation of God's heart and character. Everything changed. His life's purpose, his understanding of the scriptures, it's all different now. And so he needed this time to reflect upon this newly found enlightenment. To meditate upon the scriptures he once thought that he knew. Because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He thought, hey, I learned under Gamaliel. I know this stuff, like backwards and forwards. I know this stuff. But now he needed to study the scriptures in light of Jesus Christ. To be alone with God without any distractions. To be silent with God and to absorb the gospel. He didn't immediately consult with anyone. See, he didn't go up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles like Peter and all the other apostles that were there. He didn't talk to any of those guys. He wanted to be alone with God in Arabia. And he was alone with God for three years. Now I find three years interesting because three years is the same amount of time that the apostles had with Jesus. So it has me wonder if he got what the apostles got in those three years hanging with Jesus. And those times of solitude and those times of silence that he was just being fed into by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. He only visited Cephas for 15 days, Peter. And he visited James, Jesus' blood brother, half-brother. And so this further supports verses 11 and 12. The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man. He only visited two guys. Nor was I taught it. It was for a short time he was with those guys. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I was with him in Arabia for three years. See, he didn't get it from anyone except Jesus himself. Isn't it interesting how Paul was so influenced by people in his religious extremist days? Think about the people that influenced his life. Gamaliel, the Sanhedrin, his family, all the rabbis. But when he encountered Jesus, it was just Jesus. 
to learn what Jesus had to teach him rather than running to man? How many of us run to people rather than running to God? You know, when you get into your problems, you run to somebody rather than running to God. How many of us want the words of people rather than wanting the word of God? Are you wanting to get this encouragement from somebody or say I love you or whatever, and it's in the word of God? I think Paul learned a valuable lesson back then. He heard from religious, reputable, influential, gifted, powerful people his entire life. He had a very influential family. They were Roman citizens. He had this background his entire life. Then he met Jesus. They all fell to the wayside. All of them just fell to the wayside. He just wanted Jesus. And I think it took him three years to learn and to unlearn things about the church and the scriptures. And he needed the time to be with God to restudy the scriptures in light of Jesus as the Messiah. And how the scriptures must have just come to life to him. They just must have popped. Imagine Paul studying Isaiah. And as he's reading Isaiah, this huge grin just goes on his face, knowing this is who he prophesied about. Man, I can't believe this. And how clear grace must have been understood by Paul. No way that this is man's gospel. No way. He didn't receive it from any man, nor was he taught it. He had the best religious education ever. And he didn't receive it. But he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't pick up the gospel from hanging out for 15 days with Cephas. Or hanging out with Jesus' brother, James. The revelation of Jesus Christ beginning at the Damascus Road and then three years in Arabia, mostly in solitude and study before God and how the gospel was preached to Paul. Verse 20. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Keep in mind this is Paul. right? Formerly a voting member, ruling council of the Sanhedrin. A Jewish Roman citizen who was trained in Jerusalem by the top rabbinical school under Gamaliel, the top rabbi, according to the strict manner of the law of the fathers, which meant he fully understood the Torah and what Moses wrote about bearing false witness, about lying. Keep in mind, he also followed the halakha, which is these additional laws to the Torah, right? Rabbinical laws, customs, traditions, all these things, uh, the Talmudic law. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anyone anyone was going to take lying, bearing false witness seriously, this is your guy. It's Paul. And so Paul right here, verse 20, is making it really clear. I'm not lying to you. Keep in mind, I'm Paul. And I'm not lying to you. There's no human interference in the gospel. Verse 21. Then I went in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. The region of Cilicia is where Tarsus is, and that's where Paul was from. And Syria is an adjacent region. And I think he used this time in Syria and Cilicia to continue processing learning through what he gained during his time in Arabia with God and during the time he invested hanging out with Peter and James. See, Paul heard from one of Jesus' closest disciples, Cephas, Peter. And he heard from Jesus' own blood brother, half-brother, James. 
all the questions he must have had for them. Imagine these conversations. I mean, these are awesome conversations. Imagine this. 15 days with Peter, right? He's talking and he's picking his mind and he's hearing all that happened with Peter and Jesus in those three years and he's like, you walked on water? You walked on water. How in the world? And Peter's like, yeah, you know, I did, but I, you know, I fell after a few steps. It wasn't that big of a thing, you know. And then he's like, you went to Caesarea and you said what to Jesus? You said what? And he said, get behind me, Satan? Man, you have foot and mouth disease. Why do you always say those stupid things to Jesus? Like, why are you doing this? And then he got to hang out with Jesus' brother, right? James. And he's having these conversations. So like, what was Jesus like as a kid? Did he ever beat you up? Like, um... Are you still in therapy because you had a perfect older brother? Like, I mean, like, awesome talks, right? Like, just great talks. And so Paul wrote this into his story because he wanted the Galatian churches to track every movement because they didn't have GPS then. To solidify the case that he didn't make up the gospel. I didn't talk to a bunch of people to come up with this thing. It's just from Jesus. I didn't hang out with other people. I didn't do anything. All I did was I went to three years in Arabia and I came back and this is the gospel. He wasn't swayed by any of the apostles. He went to visit them after three years in Arabia and he went visiting them not as like a, a disciple of theirs. He didn't go there to learn from them. The translation goes something more of like he went as a tourist. He went out of curiosity. More out of someone who was going there just to take like a trip. Like we do for pilgrimages, right? We just kind of go just for a short trip and, and to talk to these two guys for a short time. And then he was back away again. See, Paul carefully built a case that there was no human interference in the gospel that I'm writing you. The gospel is all God. And keep in mind, Paul was a lawyer. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a good lawyer at that. And so he's building this case with a timeline of his life. And so this wasn't like Paul saying like, you know, oh, this boom, oh, that cool gospel idea I have. You guys are dead in your trespasses. This is not an overnight thing. He didn't come up with this story or, or take the followers of Jesus' story and import them and then create his own thing. This was years of Paul being in solitude with Jesus in Arabia, of studying and praying and reflecting, investigating, researching. And it was pretty much just between him and God. Typically, if we want to learn something, we go to people who can teach us, right? That's what we do. You want to learn a sport, you go to a coach. You want to learn how to play a musical instrument, you go to a teacher. Paul didn't do this when it came to knowing about God. He went directly to God. And you know what is just mind-boggling to me? You want to know how well Paul knew the Scriptures? It's not like he could take an iPad out to Arabia. I mean, there's nowhere to plug it in, right? He can't take, like, the Bible. It wasn't printed. And back then, it wasn't just a book. It was, like, massive scrolls, like the scroll of Isaiah. If you go into a synagogue, the scroll of Isaiah is, like, humongous. So he's taking all these books out in the desert. Like, oh, i got to study all this stuff. Can you imagine what he knew in his head? This is a brilliant man to go out for three years. I can go out to Arabia for like a day 
And they'll be like, what did the Bible say about that? I need to go back and get my book. He's out there for three years. Can you imagine? He just, he just knows it. He just knows it. And if you're a Pharisee, you actually memorize word for word the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you know it. But I'm sure he knew more than that. And he's just like out there like quoting everything, like blah, 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 three years long, blah, blah, blah. I'd be done in like a day. And so you typically go to someone to learn something. He goes directly to God. This is what we typically do. This is what pastors do. Let me let you in on some insight. We network. When we, we want to raise funds for a building project or we want to do something like, oh, fund our ministry. or I don't do this. I, I don't do this. I don't have the rich network people. But typically, we go to these networks and we try to network with the right people at the right time so that we can get in with something. Or we try to get in so that we can get more training from somebody that knows something more than we do. And we try to do all these things to try to get ahead. Right? So we, we network and, and we, we meet people and we talk to people and we try to rub shoulders with people who are influential and powerful and have resources and all this stuff. Paul had all of that and he didn't go to it. Is that crazy? He had it. He could just go straight back to the Sanhedrin or go to some of the people like, that identified with Jesus and find out a, um, who was cool with Jesus in our circle of the Pharisees. And let's try to like, change things within the Sanhedrin. Let's try to maneuver things. Let's try to manipulate things. Let's try to do stuff. He doesn't do any of that. He just goes straight to God. This is a man of faith. This is not a strategic man. That's not to say that that's not important. And it's not to say that community isn't important in our discipleship. But how many times do we run to people without running to God? Do you have questions about God? Are you angry with God? Go to Him. Talk to Him. He'd like you to look towards being in His presence more than going to look towards other people that know about Him or books that are written about Him or music that is sung about Him or art that is about Him. Go to Him. Right? And those things can offer you a lot. But they pale in comparison to being in the presence of God. Sometimes I get concerned for our church because we have so many things going on. So many ministries, outreaches, small groups, community events, but when I look at Paul's life, it was so simple. It was a time of solitude that really drew him near to God. And I look at Jesus' times of solitude, and I look at Moses' times of solitude, all these great people of God who drew near to God. So I'm really concerned that in our fast-paced, technology-driven, hungry, immediate gratification world, we're going to lose out on the intimacy that God has for us because we're running right by it. We're just busy doing stuff. Ever notice that Jesus was never in a hurry? You never read in the Bible, and he ran. You know, he's never, never. And he's never late for an appointment or anything like that. Like, oh, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not be dead. He's like, cries a little bit, and he's like, raise him from the dead. I'm never late, never, you know. And so you see how Paul was not hurried in his relationship with God three years in Arabia. And so, like our church, sometimes you wonder, like, oh, we're not growing fast enough, we're not doing this fast enough. Chill out with God. It's all about the intimacy of God, right? It's all about building this intimacy with God. I don't think we have to do more church, because we do a lot. 
considering the size that we are, we actually do a lot. I'm convinced that we need to hang out with God more. I think that's what we need to do. And I think people will notice something is different even if they don't know you. Right? Like they did in Paul. They didn't have like a picture of Paul like, oh, look at Paul. He's such an ugly guy, really. And they wouldn't know Paul if they walked right in front of his face. Like they don't know Paul. But they knew of Paul that this guy was a changed person. They heard that someone who used to persecute us and throw us in jail, he became one of us? That's nuts. I mean, this Jesus thing's real then, huh? And hopefully that is something our church is recognized for. People may not know us by face, but they know that people who come in here, they leave changed. Right? Like, I don't know the ministry staff there. I don't know the pastor. I don't know the elders there. I don't know anything. All I know is that brother of mine used to be addicted to meth and used to steal to feed his meth addict, and it's not happening anymore. He went in there and he came out changed. That people encounter God here. They don't just get church programs. They get God's presence. Verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. This has me wondering if somewhere along the line, Paul heard Jesus' words that Matthew recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That he found out that there were Christians who followed Jesus' teachings here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, starting with Stephen, whom he condoned the murder of, and perhaps he sensed the love, the blessing, the goodness, the prayers from his interactions with Ananias, with Cephas, with James, all these guys. There's a ton of research about the dying influence of the Christian church. Maybe we focus too much on programming. Maybe we focus too much on serving the needs of the people in the church and our budgets and our buildings. You want to see the least likely person become a follower of Jesus? Probably not going to happen by having a nicer facility or more community events. Probably not going to happen. Actually, it won't happen. It's going to happen when we take Jesus' words to heart by loving our enemies, blessing them that curse us, doing good to them that hate us, and praying for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Yesterday, Brett, the South African dude with the dreads, now all you guys are like, oh yeah, I know Brett now. He wore this awesome shirt yesterday, and it was Osama bin Laden, and it said, bless them that curse you or something like that. But it had something like that. Or do good to those who hate you or something like that. It was, it was in regard to that thing. And I was like, that's awesome. That's what it's about. It would be so great to see those who used to be hostile towards faith in Jesus come to faith in Jesus. And I wonder if we're taking enough risks to increase our faith or have we just become too comfortable here where evangelism has been outsourced to others in the church. So we're like, oh, you know, this person in our home group, he's the one that's better at this. Or those ministry staff, or those elders, or those people, those are the ones that need to do those things. When we've all been commissioned to do this, 
And we all have personal ownership of the gospel message that was graciously gifted to us, but some of us have hidden it away. When is the last time the gospel has been shared by you? And I'm not doing this to like point at you and convict you or anything like that. If that is happening to you, that's the Holy Spirit. I'm not meaning to do that. But I hope and pray that we have not become or are becoming a weak and cowardly church that is focused inwardly, made up of people who want as little commitment as possible for as little investment of time, money, and resources as possible. Because we have a lot of lost souls out there being lured into darkness. And our job is to save souls. Seventy children enter the foster care system every day in the state of California. Seventy. Over 60% of sex trafficked children are foster children. Over 60%. Seventy entering every day. The Christian church, including ours, does a lot to combat this issue. We do a lot. But it seems like we're losing this battle. Right? We invest a lot of time, a lot of money, we network together, we're doing all this stuff. I wonder if we change things, if things would be different. I wonder how much we bless the pimps that curse our work. How much we do good to the pimps that hate us because of what we're doing in political realms and rescuing people and rehabilitating and doing all that stuff. I wonder how much we are praying for them. Because we pray for the girls all the time. And we pray for these organizations all the time to have more funding, to bring in the girls. We pray for legislation to change all the time. But how much are we praying for those enemies? Sometimes I wonder if we combat this issue as well as any other issue that the church combats the way Jesus really wanted us to combat them. Blessing our enemies, praying for them. We need to go to God more than we need to go to our politician. Right? We need to go to God more than we need to go to the police or the schools or nonprofit organizations, all these things. As a church, if what we do in terms of ministry is not about evangelism or discipleship, how about changing the ministry that you're in to have evangelism and discipleship in the forefront of the ministry? See, they don't have to know your face. What they need to know is your faith. Right? Just like Paul here in Galatians chapter 1, and they glorified God because of me. Not because they saw his face. They saw his faith. And what a great way to be known, to be remembered. Paul got it right. Do you have people who glorify God because of you? Because they've encountered you, they glorify God, not because of who you are in the flesh, but who you are in the faith. Whatever your context may be, student, parent, spouse, child, colleague, employer, employee, whatever. Whatever you do, wherever you are, people glorify God because of you. What a way to gauge the presence of the gospel in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how you minister to us. I ask, Lord, that in our continued growth and our continued sanctification, becoming more like you, Jesus, we ask, God, that we would be sensitive to the lessons you have before us. I pray, Lord, that 
it would be more than just information and head knowledge that it would be life transforming that things would be different because we have truly encountered you. May it not be a work of our flesh where we just program all this stuff out to be closer to you, but may your spirit just organically flow through us as we believe it with the size of a mustard seed. We have the faith to believe that you'll do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.